Welcome to episode three of the Rising Edge DNO podcast, available on all podcast apps. So do make sure you are subscribed to get every episode downloaded straight to your device. In our first two episodes, we have covered risk mitigation for D's and O's concerning US securities litigation and ESG. So if you are new to the podcast and discovering us for the first time in this episode, then I do recommend checking out our back catalogue. But in this episode, Owen, we are addressing UK derivative actions. Um, With ESG, we talked about this being a relatively new area of risk for directors and officers to consider, and obviously quite a fast developing area as well. Is it fair to say that UK derivatives is, a, is an area we should all be a little bit more familiar with? Well, in, in the DNA world, we're very familiar with um, derivative claims in the context of US and Israel, especially. But in the UK, it's an area that we are um, probably less familiar with, and we will get on to why on the pod. Um, and it's actually one of the reasons we thought it would be a good topic to talk about. You know, it could be an area to keep an eye on for directors who are steering, steering the ship in an you know, an ever-increasingly challenging and complex environment. So uh, who do you have then joining us for the next 20 minutes to discuss and the current environment that you mentioned and bring us up to speed on what can be done regarding risk mitigation? So our guest today is James Cooper from the law firm Clyde & Co. James is a partner at Clyde & Co. and he's chair of Clyde & Co.'s Global Insurance Practice Group. He's also head of financial, uh, the financial institutions and the DNO team. He's got loads of experience acting for directors and officers and companies and also monitoring DNO litigation across multiple jurisdictions. He's also got experience in defending derivative actions. Um, so yeah, he's very well placed to speak on the topic and to talk about risk mitigation generally uh, and to many of the learning points that can come out of um, dealing with litigation. Well, James begins by outlining what risk mitigation for directors and officers in the UK derivative actions context means to him. I think it means different things at different times. There is a lot that D's and O's can do before a claim is received to mitigate, you know, the likelihood of a claim, but also the severity of those claims. There's got to be an understanding of who duties are owed to um, and when and to whom those duties are owed because they do change. Stakeholders can change depending upon the context, but also depending on, for example, the financial health of a company. So ultimately, probably the best thing that directors can do is to challenge the executive of the company to ensure that there's a robust mechanism within that company to identify risks and to look to put in place mechanisms to control those risks and then make sure that there is oversight around those mechanisms to ensure they're implemented and that they are continually reviewed um, for fit for purpose. That way, I think you've got your best chance of spotting problems before they arise. Now, it doesn't always work, of course. We wouldn't be talking today if there weren't claims received from directors and officers. So if a claim is received, there's still some risk mitigation that they can do. They've really got to be mindful of their actions once claims are received. So they've got to make sure they get appropriate representation to protect their interests. You've got to do that quite quickly because you can make mistakes at the beginning if you're not advised properly. Good people can advise you on the claim. They can advise you on the strategy. If you've got DNO insurance, you've got to keep your insurers informed. Most of the claims handlers that will be dealt with have been doing this for a long time and will be dealing with hundreds of DNO claims. They can really help you navigate through a lot of the issues that you'll see. Making sure that when you're talking to insurers, you're getting the appropriate authorization. Also being careful about making 
admissions and making missteps in the litigation and the pre-litigation. So if you're in a regulated entity, being careful about the admissions that you make to regulators because they can be utilized in civil proceedings, for instance. It can be a really stressful time for a director. So I think the key risk mitigation that directors need to employ once a claim is received is to make sure they've got the support that reduces the stress. A less stressed person thinks clearer. So for me, it's making sure that there is that support mechanism in place. But really, that risk mitigation, it does depend on on the time that you're looking and you can do lots of risk mitigation that should hopefully stop a claim coming in in the first place. So thinking about mitigation pre- and and after the event as such. Like you've, you've alluded to it there, you can do everything appropriately and everything you can to avoid a bad situation or, or a claim, but sometimes, you know, it's just unavoidable and you have one. Mm-hmm. You will have defended, you've handled and monitored many DNO cases over the course of your career. Could you share with us a story or an example of a case where you might have reviewed the papers and thought, oh, wow, wow I wish they hadn't done that? Or you just seen something that and thought that that really could have been avoided or mitigated? Yeah, look, it's really trite to say this, but it is the truth, record keeping. You've got to make sure that you're keeping a record of what you're doing as a board. So often the board of a company will have challenged an issue. They'll have considered it. They will have spoken to the executive. They will make, they'll have made changes, etc. but then they fail to document that review. Directors aren't required to always get things right, certainly not in this jurisdiction, but they've got to be able to demonstrate that they've kept eyes on the management of the company. So documenting that review really can be the difference between winning and losing. So making sure that the board minutes do accurately reflect the work that has been done to make sure that a particular issue is in place. And so uh, I can think of, unfortunately, multiple experiences examples where we sit down, we do a proof of evidence with the directors and they talk about this is what we did around, I don't know, bribery and corruption, for instance, in a particular jurisdiction. And we had this and that and the other in place. And you go back through the records and you come back to them a few days later and say, but we just can't find it. Oh, no, we definitely talked about it. We definitely dealt with it at a board meeting or which one? I can't remember. That's the problem. It's really trite and it's such a loyally thing to say, but we do say it for a reason, record keeping, because memories do fade. If you've got it on a contemporaneous piece of paper, that really can be the difference between winning and losing. Absolutely. And as you're talking through um, that example there, James, I can actually, I would immediately, a um, couple occurred to me where, you know, large multinational companies, where's the documentation to evidence the why about this process? Again, oh, doesn't exist. I guess it's it's a difficult mindset to get into if you're not in in the world that you and I are in. But it's thinking, how will the court look at this? How will how will the claimant lawyer look at this? You know, it's just it, it leaves it leaves things open to misinterpretation and 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 it leaves ambiguity. And we we see it on the other end. Often, also one of the one of the things that we do sometimes see and take a sharp in, intake of breath is some of the language used in emails, for instance. You know, you've got to be clear in emails. You can't and should never hide any discussions you're having. But one of the tips that I always use when sending an email is, what would my mother think of this email? <laughs> and I just say, you know, if you don't want your mum to see it, then you probably don't want to send it. Temper language, make sure that it's kept businesslike. We do tend to use emails and whatsapps and things nowadays and tend to deformalize things but it's never nice when you've got to explain a turn of phrase to a judge which you would be embarrassed to talk to your mum about 
Great. Okay, so we're going to move on now to the the main topic of the podcast today, which is um, shareholder derivative claims, mainly within the context of the UK. So could you, James, just start at a high level, just run us through what a derivative claim is, who they're brought against, and sort of the legal backdrop? So a derivative claim is an action that's brought by one or more shareholders against the directors, but it's brought on behalf of the company for a wrong committed by those directors against the company. And it's an exception to the general rule that the only person entitled to enforce a cause of action is the person recognized at law as being entitled to do so. And the fundamental concept is that a derivative action is an example of a court of equity providing a remedy in order to prevent injustice. But it's important to remember that if a derivative action is successful, the relief is granted and any damages are paid to the company itself, not the shareholder which instigated the claim. So the Companies Act of 2006 introduced a statutory footing for derivative claims that had been in common law beforehand, but it was brought into the Companies Act itself. And you'll find it in section 260. And 260 subsection 3 provides that a derivative claim can be brought only in respect of a cause of action arising from an actual or proposed act or omission involving negligence, default, breach of duty or breach of trust by a director of a company. There's four things I think it's important to note, though. The first is that a derivative action is available for a director's breach of duty, even if the director hasn't benefited personally from the breach. It's not necessary for the shareholder to show that the directors who carried out the wrongdoing controlled the majority of the company's shares. So we're not here talking about a minority shareholder situation. The third is that shareholders can take action against a director for an alleged breach which was made even before they became a shareholder. And then finally, the relief is sought on behalf of the company, not the shareholder personally. The company, though, is named in the claim as a defendant to the proceedings rather than the claimant. But these aren't very easy to bring. So in order to bring a derivative, you need the permission of the court. So an application for permission has to be made at the same time as the claim form is issued, and it's got to be supported by written evidence. And so the Companies Act provides a two-stage process for that permission. When a court looks at it, the permission must be refused if the court is satisfied that either a person acting in accordance with Section 172, which is the duty to promote the success of the company, would not want to continue the claim. Secondly, that the proposed or past act or omission for which the shareholder wants to bring a claim has been authorised by the company before it occurred or ratified since it occurred. Now, if the claimant succeeds in getting past this first stage, the court still has a discretion whether or not to permit a shareholder to continue the claim. That discretion's got to be exercised having regard to all relevant matters. There's a non-exhaustive list of factors which is set out in Section 263, subsection 3 to 4 of the Companies Act. And that includes things like whether the member's acting in good faith in seeking to continue the claim or whether the act or omission in respect of which the claim is brought gives rise to a cause of action that the shareholder could pursue in their own right rather than on behalf of the company. The court's got to have regard to any evidence before it as to the views of shareholders of the company who have no personal interest, direct or indirect, in the matter. There shouldn't, though, be a mini-trial at the permission stage, but the court will look at the strength of the case um, in its assessment of whether it should proceed. So, it's one of the very rare instances where an English court 
steps up right at the beginning to make a decision about whether a claim should proceed. More often than not in this jurisdiction, you can bring a claim if ultimately at trial or at some um, stage in, in, in the middle where the defendant has brought, for instance, summary judgment application, then the difference here is that the court will look of its own volition at the beginning as to whether a derivative should be allowed to continue or not. We're talking about shareholder claims um, here, and I just thought it would be important also to kind of uh, put a distinction between what we're talking about here and what you've just explained there and shareholder claims brought under the Financial Services and Markets Markets Act. Yeah. What, what's the difference between these these claims and derivative shareholder claims? I suppose the simplest way to show the difference is that a Section 90 or 98 FISMA claim results in damages being paid to the shareholder. A derivative results in damages being paid to the company, not to the shareholder. That's sort of the fundamental difference. And then, of course, Section 90 and Section 90A are probably slightly narrower causes of action because that's all to do with um, securities. Yeah. Whereas derivative can be much broader, it's all to do with the duties of a director. So a much broader cause of action, but that fundamental difference is who gets paid the damages. That's probably an entire podcast yes. subject in itself. So we might come back to that one, Richard. Yeah, there has been a lot going on in 1998 field. So definitely, yeah. One thing um, sort of struck me as you're walking through the um, initial stages of the claim there, it's a difficult one to get off the ground. So is it correct to say we haven't seen many of these historically in the UK? And what do you think the reason is for this? Yeah, that's definitely correct. Look, when these provisions first came into force, first of October 2007, it was predicted that it was going to lead to an explosion in litigation of direct, against directors. And there was a real fear that many of those were going to be frivolous or without merit, but that just hasn't been borne out in practice. And so, so far, there's only been a few examples of the court granting permission. That permission stage bar is set very high. Very few claims have managed to overcome it. It really is meant to act as a safeguard against claims without merit uh, and those made vexatiously. So that's deliberately where it's been set. But there have been some, and there's an example of a case where the claimants were successful in overcoming that that high bar, and that's a case called um, Cullen Investments and Brown. And there, the defendants late, were later held at trial to be in breach of their fiduciary duties, to be in breach of their duties under the Companies Act, and to be in breach of their duties under common law. So it is a rare example of a claim getting over the high bar of permission and also succeeding at trial. So all in all, really, the risk of a director facing a derivative claim in the UK is relatively low. But I think that relative is important because I would put these in that sort of low frequency, high severity position, though, because if you do receive one of these, they are pretty serious and they're generally a pretty big. And the litigation culture in the in England and Wales is changing slowly, but it's changing, particularly with the advent of third-party funding. There is now more ability for people to bring complex, expensive claims without having to entirely fund them themselves. And that is changing, I think, that sort of culture around corporate governance around shareholders' rights against companies, around the director's obligations to the companies. And when you couple that with some of the corporate governance reviews over the past couple of years, together with some of the ESG things that are coming through, that risk landscape is definitely heightened in this jurisdiction. I always tell the story that when I first started practicing insurance law as an associate, I didn't do DNO claims. We just didn't have them. Uh, I think I'd done one or two DNO claims 
before I was made a partner. I've been a partner now for and somewhere over 10 years. And now the majority of my practice is, is DNO of some kind. And a lot of it in this jurisdiction as well. Some international, but a lot of it in this jurisdiction. That risk landscape is changing. And that that need to be more attentive to risk mitigation, that need to be much more attentive to buying sufficient limits of insurance is more and more heightened in this jurisdiction, I think, than it ever has been before. I hope and pray we will never have the same risk landscape as, as the US, but we're definitely moving closer to it than we ever have done before. Who do you think is the mo- most risk of having a claim like this? Do you think there's a difference? Do you think there's more risk attached to perhaps private smaller companies or do you think or or, or is it more risk for for public larger companies or is there no difference i think because the instances of these are so low it's quite difficult to make that distinction and of course any company is at risk if members consider that the actions of the directors have caused them harm i would think though that a a listed company particularly given 1998 of FISMA, would perhaps be at slightly lower risk of a derivative than perhaps a private company or a smaller listed company, just because this is perhaps a slightly easier route than a 1998 FISMA, which is generally used for the very large cases. But that's more an impression, I think, than anything that would be borne out by the statistics. And I think when you're looking at large public companies, I'm not saying the risk is is lower. It's just the risk of a derivative is probably matched by the risk of a FISMA claim, I would think. You know, the procedure doesn't limit the scope of the wrongs to those committed within the UK either. So directors of multinational companies can face derivative actions here in relation to conduct that um, occurred abroad, if it's an English company operating abroad. And those companies that just don't promote good corporate culture who fail to properly investigate directorial wrongdoing are more likely to aggrieve shareholders. So companies have got to consider putting in place adequate policies and procedures to address those sorts of issues. Have you defended any of these types of claims in the past? And if you have, could you give us a run through of what happened? We've just finished defending one about two months ago, which we got successfully struck out not successfully struck out using the permission stage, but just successfully struck out a little bit further down down the track. We got it struck out around uh, disclosure when it was pretty clear that they just weren't willing to comply with the disclosure obligations in, in our jurisdiction. It was interesting. I go back to a word I used earlier around the risk mitigation. It was incredibly stressful for the director who was facing it. It wasn't an easy time for him, but he was supported by his insurer. And so uh, he was able to really focus on defending the claim and using, you know, some good defense strategies that we worked up and we, we, we used well to get it struck out because he had that support. He wasn't having to think all the time about, oh my God, how can I afford this? So yeah, we have had that experience. It was a really, really interesting case. And it was very interesting to go through that permission stage at the beginning as well, because it's not something that many lawyers um, get the chance to do. And I, and I wonder, just going back to, you mentioned litigation funding earlier, um, maybe in, it sounds to me like in that case, maybe, maybe there wasn't that backing on the other side. But again, maybe in future with more of these cases in the hands of, of funders, uh, makes it, well, just makes it a different proposition from a defence standpoint, I guess. Yeah, yeah. James, could you run us through some key things, practical tips that companies and directors can do in order to manage the risk of potential shareholder derivative litigation? 
I've used this term again a couple of times, but it's really important. A really good corporate culture operating from the top down with clear accountability that absolutely lessens the risk of claims, be those derivatives or any other claim arising from the multitude of exposures that directors uh, face when they take on these roles. So some specific things that they can do to minimise the chances of facing a derivative. So putting in place effective lines of communication with shareholders, that always, always going to lower the risk of disputes arising from misunderstandings. Engaging with those shareholders and sharing the vision that the directors, that the board has for the company. Proactively addressing concerns raised by shareholders and looking to compromise, looking to listen to the shareholders where possible. I think in the case of non-listed companies in particular, it's well worth considering seeking a shareholder authorization or ratification for controversial decisions that are being made or have been made. You remember when I talked earlier about the permission stage, if a decision has been ratified by the company, permission should be refused. Listed companies that are seeking ratification, that can take much more time, it can be costly. So you've always got to consider whether it is beneficial to do that or not and balance up those sort of competing demands. Ensuring that directors receive all the information that is needed to make informed decisions and going back again to my point earlier about keeping records and then really important investigating suggestions of wrongdoing in a timely manner, making sure again that you're documenting those investigations, that there's a clear conclusion reached, clear changes made, etc. But being timely, fast moving and decisive once that investigation is completed. That's derivative claims. We're coming to a quick fire answer round at the end, um, going back to sort of the more general topic of, of risk mitigation for directors and officers. James, can you tell us what are your top three mitigation strategies, behaviours that DNOs can implement that will help them uh, mitigate against the risk of, of claims? Okay, so number one, be aware of your duties. Your duties in this jurisdiction are wide in scope. They include fiduciary duties under the Companies Act. They include some corporate governance duties, sector-related duties, if you're regulated by the FCA or some other regulator. And you've also got a whole host of civil and criminal liabilities. We've also had the white paper from the government earlier this year around potential changes to the way in which directors will be regulated as individuals as well. So those exposures are vast, and so understanding them all in, in granular detail is difficult, but acting with honesty, integrity in the best interest of the company is always going to stand you in good stead. Second one, be diligent. The board has got to carefully review all of the materials before signing them off. They've got to question, they've got to interrogate when matters need further explanation. And then finally, corporate culture, that good behavior from the top down. You've got to put in place and maintain effective policies and procedures, and you've got to ensure that there is regular and thorough training of everybody within the company around your corporate culture, making sure that it is embedded in your organization from top to bottom. Well, thank you to James Cooper, partner at the law firm Clyde & Co, for a very informative 20 minutes on the UK derivative actions landscape for directors and officers. Owen, what were your key takeaways from, from that discussion? Thank you, Richard. I've got four. I'll run through them. The first one is risk mitigation is not just pre-event planning and thinking, but it's also about post-event, especially in that time immediately after a claim is received. It can be a really stressful time at that initial stage, and, and there's a lot of pressure. And that can lead to poor decision making so the lesson I guess here is make sure you have the right team together as soon as possible don't rush into any decisions just because you know often you might see kind of arbitrary time limits put on stuff by by claimants obviously the appointment of a lawyer 
with appropriate expertise um, with the support of insurers is critical at this stage. So again, some planning. Secondly, James describes it as sounding trite and loyally, and it, it kind of is, but it, it does come up over and over again. It's becoming the theme of, the, of this um, whole podcast series. Um, but record keeping for boards, the what, how, why, and the record to demonstrate all of this. And an important point I think James makes is you know, you're not expected to get everything right especially in the UK context, but you are expected to be able to demonstrate uh, the record of review and oversight. Thirdly, what would my mother think um, in, <laughs> <Yeah>. in, <laughs> when thinking about internal communications? And I think, you know, we've all seen things that sort of that make us uh, take our breath away sometimes, but I love, I love the way he's put that. And then finally, when it comes to general risk mitigation, the landscape of the UK is changing all of the time and maybe the risk of claims is higher than it was many years ago so you know we've not seen many in the UK maybe we will in future but then when it comes down to risk mitigation again it's just not it's not really rocket science it's about uh, for the individuals understanding their duties being diligent maintaining building and ensuring good strong corporate culture top down and all these things will stand you in good stead fantastic well that is all we have time for in episode three of the rising edge dno podcast please remember that the easiest way to make sure you do not miss a future episode and explore the back catalogue of episodes that we are building is to subscribe on your podcast app of choice just search for us and hit follow or subscribe you can also sign up for email updates from rising edge by visiting the risingedge.co website and clicking on the dno podcast tab we'll put a link to that in the episode show notes but owen in the meantime stay well see you soon thank you richard same to you